Hello and welcome to the Science AAAS webinar. This is the second event in our 12-part series that will run over the coming year intended to address important timely and sometimes controversial topics that impact us all, but with a particular focus on the sciences. Next month our focus will be on science and human rights with upcoming topics including mental health and science communication. Today's event is made possible through the generous sponsorship of Foundation Epson. Our focus is fighting fake science. I'm Sean Sanders and it's my pleasure to moderate today's discussion. Now onto our panel and today's topic. I'm going to give each of our panel members a chance to tell you what they do and what they bring to today's conversation, but first let me introduce them to you briefly. Just to my left is Dr. Ivan Oransky, who is a distinguished writer-in-residence at New York University's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. He is also the co-founder of Retraction Watch. Next we have Dr. Barbara Jasny, formerly a deputy editor at the journal Science with over 30 years of experience reading and assessing scientific publications. Our third guest is Dr. Chris Scott, Professor of Medicine, Medical Ethics and Health Policy and Associate Director of Health Policy at the Center for Medi Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine, where he studies the ethical, legal and social implications of emerging biotechnologies. And finally, I'm pleased to welcome Richard Harris, a reporter at National Public Radio with over three decades of experience covering science, medicine and the environment. He is the author of the book Rigor Mortis about challenges and dysfunction in the biomedical research industry today. It's truly an honor and a pleasure to have all of you with us here today. So thank you for being here. Um, I'm going to start with you, Ivan, if I could. If you could uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure. Thanks, Sean, and thanks to the Foundation and to AAAS for having me. I was sort of launched onto my uh, interest, if you will, my, my journey of looking at scientific publications and also to some extent scientific misconduct really during medical school I trained as a doctor I worked at JAMA the Journal of the American Medical Association as a student editor a section they used to have there uh, and I became very interested in just how scientific publication worked how peer review worked uh, its some of its flaws which I'm sure we'll get into today uh, and also its promise of course uh, and then in 2010 uh, Adam Marcus who's my co-founder at Retraction Watch he and I were having a conversation really uh, after Adam had broken a big story about someone named Scott Rubin who eventually went to federal prison uh, for charges related to scientific misconduct. And it got me to thinking and Adam to thinking that there were a lot of untold stories in what I think we can today sort of talk about as fake science. Uh, a lot of them were hidden in plain sight uh, in retraction notices that really no one was paying attention to. Uh, we created this without any real sense of what was going on in this field uh, and in science in general in terms of scientific publishing. And that was eight and a half years ago and we've now uh, created in addition to Retraction Watch where we post every day about retractions a database of more than 18,000 retractions going up to 19,000 at this point. Uh, and it's the most comprehensive database that exists of retractions and I'm sure we'll talk about that later so thank you. Oh, fantastic, thank you Ivan. Barbara? Sean, and let me add my thanks for this, this invitation. Uh, I started out life as a molecular biologist. I did laboratory research for a number of years, so I know the stresses that young investigators have in publishing and writing grants, but I think I was invited here because I spent the past 32 years uh, coordinating some of the peer review for 
papers that are submitted to Science Magazine, which means I've seen several thousand papers and heard about more from other editors. And it's given me a vantage point of watching how the fields of science and how the standards in science have changed. That evolution has presented challenges, both for the peer review process and also for reproducibility, which I'm sure we'll be talking about. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Chris. Thanks, John, and for the organizers for having me. Um, I come here from the area of bioethics and health and science policy. Uh, I am a, a early trained molecular and cell biologist myself, so come not only from work at the bench, but also now in the uh, bioethics uh, and uh, science policy areas. I've been interested in major cases of fraud for most of my career, going back into the 80s, into the stem cell uh, uh, cases of the mid-2000s, and, and now the, to the present day with the Chinese uh, experiments. So I'm very interested in these particular cases, how they impact science. I've also had occasion over the course of my career to uh, teach responsible conduct of research to scientists uh, and medical students. And so this is a topic where I'm hoping to bring back what I learned today back to my students uh, in Houston. Thanks, Chris. Richard? Yes, well, I've been a science correspondent at NPR since 1986. Covered a whole bunch of different stories over the years in all sorts of fields, ranging from nuclear meltdowns in Japan to uh, the SARS epidemic in China. I uh, covered the BP oil well blowout uh, in uh, 2010. So, uh, so I sort of had, had, had a wide spectrum of experiences in science journalism. Uh, in 2014, I turned my attention back to biomedical research. I spent a, a chunk of time that year trying to understand the state, what the state of, of, of this whole enterprise and found that there were some problems, funding stresses and so on. And I thought these sorts of things are probably causing problems within the world of science and I wanted to dig in and find out what they were. So after reporting about it a little bit for NPR, I actually took a sabbatical in 2015 and uh, wrote a book on the topic uh, called Rigor Mortis. It's about rigor and reproducibility in biomedical research. Uh, not, not so much a shake your finger at what's wrong with everything, but a, a, a broad exploration of why the incentives are not aligned properly for scientists to do their best work and to, and to, do, uh, to publish things that are believable and, and helpful and move science forward. I actually thought about talk, calling it uh, science friction because the, the <laughs> message that I want to get across is that it's, science hasn't stopped, but this is something that's slowing down right. science and if we could uh, reduce the friction, we could speed up progress in biomedical research. Right. Great. So many puns. <laughs> yes, I know. So little time. So little time. <laughs> Great. So thank you very much, Richard, and thanks everyone for being here. So over the next hour, what I'd like to do is first talk about some of the issues that are facing the scientific community with regard to both the reality and the perception um, of the distribution of bad science. Um, but I don't want to linger just on the problems. I think enough has been said about that, and there's a, a lot of articles out there, some of which we'll, I'm sure, touch on. Um, so. A good part of today I'd like to spend talking about solutions and again there's been publications in this area, um, there's been some efforts and I think some have worked, some haven't, but I'd really like this to be an open and transparent and honest discussion about what you see as, as experts as some of the solutions that we could implement uh, to uh, address some of these challenges that we'll, we'll be talking about in a minute. Um, and what 
individuals, institutions, publishers, companies, and the media can all do um, to help um, move this problem forward or, or help move solutions to this problem forward. Um, so I'd like to start with a review of the landscape um, of what we're kind of provocatively calling fake science. Um, so Ivan, I'm going to come to you um, and ask if you can talk about um, the fact that there's, there's many origins for untrustworthy data that range all the way from inadvertent errors through to outright fabrication of results. So if you could address some of the, um, the types of retractions that you see, the reasons for retractions, and what is on this continuum, and sort of where, where most retractions fall. Sure. So if you take a look at the uh, now close to 19,000 retractions that we have in our database, uh, retractiondatabase.org, about 60% of them are due to something that would be thought of as misconduct. Uh, that could be fabrication, making up the data, falsification, meaning that you have made the results look better than they really are, or maybe left out some you know, outliers, which is arguably fabrication, in fact. Uh, or plagiarism, that's actually mm -hmm. considered, although not the sort of worst of sins, in fact, also considered misconduct. But that res that's responsible for about 60% of these retractions. And it's important to put that in context, too, um, that number has more or less stayed the same uh, if you look at retractions over time. The number of retractions has grown, so has the number of uh, publications, but it's still a relatively rare event, quite rare event. About, it's about under one-tenth of one percent of papers published every year that are retracted over, over some period of time. Uh, and what's interesting about this, there are many things that are interesting about it, this seems to reflect actually more scrutiny of science, more scrutiny of publications. Mm -hmm. um, Back in the year 2000, there were about 40 retractions. Last year, there were about 1,400 retractions. Again, with a bigger denominator, more papers being published. But clearly, there's more scrutiny. There's plagiarism detection software. There are papers that are all online now mm -hmm. that people can look at. That being said, the number of papers that should be retracted is almost certainly higher. Uh, not sure exactly how much higher. But given how often we hear from people who have brought legitimate and, and very verifiable uh, allegations about particular papers or about particular data that aren't retracted, I do think we have to at least be cognizant, even though the number of retractions is sort of plateauing, uh, that there is a bigger problem out there than we think, but that fraud itself is probably a pretty small percentage of what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so Richard, let me come to you. Um, can you Give us some sort of historical perspective of, from what you discovered in the research for your book as to how this, the reproducibility crisis and you know, a lot of what you talk about, about in your book, the issues in, in biomedical science, how that came about um, and how this was recognized. Right, and I think in science you can always find somebody who will say, oh, it actually predates whatever you're talking about. So mm -hmm. I'm going to take an arbitrary start and recognize that this conversation actually happened before this. But, but where I start uh, really focusing in my book is Glenn Begley's work in uh, some years ago, uh, and he was looking at uh, papers that had been that had come to his company, Amgen, and he was head of cancer research there. And he was finding that when when these exciting papers from universities were coming into his uh, uh, into his offices, they couldn't reproduce them very often. And so he did a uh, a survey of 56 of these papers and said, I'm going to try again. And he brought them back to the original authors frequently, or he tried to reproduce them in his labs. And in the end, only uh, only about 11% of them reproduced. And uh, mm -hmm. that he published that in, 
in nature. There was a similar publication that came to uh, similar results also from the Bayer drug company, uh, actually preceded his by a little bit, but his got much more attention than the other paper. But this really uh, made people sit up, I think, more than anything else and say, hey, there's a problem here. We need to be aware that a lot of science is going on. Exciting, exciting papers are not being reproduced. Why is that? Uh, I, I actually shy away from the term reproducibility crisis because crisis implies sort of a sudden uh, onset or something. I think this has actually been a, a, an ongoing problem or issue for science forever, partly because science is hard and everything you do doesn't turn out to be right. right. Uh, and, and so a lot of this is uh, just sort of the natural process of science, and we shouldn't get too upset that things are don't don't always reproduce. But uh, but but I think these these two papers really did more than any other event. I think to sort of say this is an issue we need to focus on, and and that's really where I would at least for the purposes of conversation where I where I'll put the the marker right. down. Right. And when when that happened, when those papers were published, what was the response of the scientific community overall? I think the, it was mixed. I think the NIH actually, uh, which funds a great deal of the science, recognized that this was actually something they had to pay attention to. Uh, one of these papers was actually published uh, the day that Francis Collins, the director, was on Capitol Hill testifying on these topics. And uh, he said, yes, this is something uh, that, that we need to address as, because he, you know, he felt that you know, this is a potentially a, a large waste of taxpayer dollars and obviously embarrassing for the, uh, uh, for the enterprise as a whole. And so the NIH really did, to its credit, uh, sit down and say, what can we do? And they, they don't have all the levers to pull, but they have some levers that they could pull to make differences. So, so they've, over the intervening years, they have been instituting some important changes, like at least getting scientists who are applying for grants to ask, is the underlying data that I'm building this idea on, is it sound? And do I have a plan to make sure that what I'm doing is reproducible? And, and more uh, basic but very important things, for example, if, if you're using uh, cell cultures in your experiment, are they actually what you think they are? And that's a huge problem. That's a very major pro problem for re your reproducibility. Uh, there are, there are so hundreds of cell lines out there that are not what they're advertised to be. And so, so the NIH says, if you're using cell lines, we expect you to validate them uh, if you're going to you know, use our money and publish them uh, under, you know, uh, under your NIH grant. So, uh, so, so those are just, that's just a, a quick flavor. But I mean, there's, there, there's a lot more. <laughs> Great. Barbara, I'd like to come to you. So you've, you've had the perspective of 30 years, over 30 years at Science. Mm -hmm. What changes have you seen from your early years as an mm -hmm. editor to more recently? Have you seen more attractions? Have you seen perhaps more misconduct or perception of more misconduct? Well, I would say that the number of attractions is very low. I agree with Ivan. <clears throat> I think the kind of science that's being done is, has changed. We are seeing more multidisciplinary works, which means that one set of authors may not actually understand the techniques that are being used by another set, and that can cause problems. Certainly, we're seeing the sheer number of authors on papers going up. Uh, when I first started at the magazine, there were many more single author papers or papers with very small groups of authors. Now we, can, we are seeing over 100, sometimes over 200 authors on a paper, which leaves a lot of room for miscommunication among <laughs> authors. Uh, we're also seeing biology becoming more of a quantitative science. At times that has meant that 
biologists who are not used to certain kinds of computation are relying and over-relying on software programs, and that can lead to trouble. Uh, as an example, a number of years ago, five crystallography papers had to be withdrawn. You know, crystallography depends on taking patterns of spots from X-ray diffraction and building them up into a crystal. But because of a problem in the software, the uh, structures were wrong. And this is something that we caution uh, authors not to over-rely on software packages, to know what, is, what the software is that they're using and what its limitations are. Mm -hmm. Great. I'd like to just come back very quickly to the, the issue that you mentioned of biology becoming more quantitative. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wonder if that has happened more quickly than the training has changed for biologists. So uh, biology training tends to be more observational, in, in my opinion anyway, and now we're very much in a world where we're doing a lot of quantitation, a lot of data is being churned out by machines. Mm -hmm. um, so. Do you have any opinion on that? Do you, do you think that we, we're sort of we're getting ahead of ourselves? My own feeling is, and I can't say that I've studied this exhaustively, that the young people are doing very well they, because they are beginning to be trained and feel the need to be trained in this. That the problem is the older heads of laboratories don't always understand what it is that's being used. Mm -hmm. Right. Richard, did you have any comments on the quantitative side? Yeah, well, I think that the, I think the young people are better than their, their elders, but I also think that they feel that they are underprepared. Uh, mm -hmm. Most graduate programs offer, in, 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 in biomedical research, offer one or two uh, statistics classes, maybe just one, and that's not enough in this world where so much is dependent upon this. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I've talked to many young scientists who say, we realize we need to do a lot better than this. And they also say, we need to teach our, our, uh, our our elders essentially a little bit better how to do this, but that is a uh, that is a, certainly a place uh, where I think there's a good room for improvement. To put more effort into teaching not only statistics but but methodology, experimental design. Mm -hmm. This happens sort of by osmosis when you're working in a lab. Generally, basically, is cheap labor for your professor, mm -hmm. uh, but it really it is not institutionalized as much as it needs to be in biomedical research to actually think about how, what is the right way to, to, to do an experiment? What is the right way to, to think about blinding in these other ways of avoiding bias that, that can creep in, even if, you know, through not any out of malice or anything, but a lot of these ideas are sort of old-fashioned ideas about how many mice do you use? Well, six. Why? Well, mm. because that's what everybody else uses. Right. <laughs> and that, that's just not the right way to go. And so, mm -hmm. so there's a recognition around that, that point, but it, it, uh, that's a, a, a great avenue for improvement, um, in my view. Great. So if this I can add to, yeah, sure. to that, here and there, there are people who are really focusing on that. Some, one is Arturo Casasval, who's talked about the need to put the philosophy back into the PhD. Mm -hmm. And at, at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Health, they have instituted a program for graduate students where the emphasis is really on critical thinking and problem solving and understanding what are the problems that can come up and how do you design to deal with those problems. Mm -hmm. So th there are people who are trying to deal with that situation. Great. So this brings me nicely to some questions I have for, for Chris, but I'm going to let you comment on, on what Richard and Barbara have said. You know, as uh, Barbara was explaining the legions of authors that now mm -hmm. start to populate uh, uh, science papers, biomedical science papers, physics, have had these legions for decades. Mm -hmm. 
So what's different? I mm -hmm. Is there a different? Ivan, do you see that in your data? Or is there a greater incidence of perhaps miscommunication and fraud in the hard sciences versus the biological sciences? <laughs> People often ask us that, and it's a great question. What we find, though, and again, I think this is one of those cases where different fields can actually learn from one another. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes they probably don't learn from one another as mm -hmm. much as they could or, or should. In, in physics, and in particular some of these papers you're talking about, I mean, authors in the th authorship in the thousands. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if it, it's almost like, why weren't you an author of, of that <laughs> paper? Uh, what, what did, who did you annoy um, at the last lab meeting? What we find actually is a, you know, slightly lower rate of retraction uh, in certain areas, including physics. I don't know that it has anything to do with the number of authors. Uh, it probably has more to do with the culture of, and I think this gets into some of the publishing issues, mm. it has to do with the culture of publishing and a culture, in fact, of what are known as preprints, right, mm. and of uh, something called archive, which now, of course, is, mm -hmm. you know, there are different archives, but these are essentially manuscripts that are deposited, that are, you know, published online without having gone through peer review, but then everyone does the peer review sort of almost live, not not live, but sort of online and sort of after the uh, after the posting, not the publication in a peer-reviewed sense. And so you might think, A, it's a smaller community of people, and B, you have many more eyeballs on something before it is quote-unquote published, you know, after peer review. I'm, I'm oversimplifying a bit, but if anything, we see less, fewer retractions in some of those areas. Uh, when you, and, and, it, and maybe the other, the sort of, there are always many, many ways to look at each of these issues. You could also argue that so many people have been involved, even if only each one of those involved, you know, one little iota, uh, that in fact there's been more review. Uh, and in fact also there are people, I don't know who would be left to peer review the paper if it was so many, if there were so many authors, everyone would have a conflict. But if you look at some of these areas of biology, for example, which I, I think uh, sort of dovetails into what Barbara was saying about the specialization too, mm -hmm. you know, not just the techniques but also the specialization. I think journals often find it very difficult to find someone who is qualified and obviously has time to peer review with these emerging areas. And sometimes that's because the emerging area isn't all there. Sometimes it's because there just are four people in it and two of them just wrote this paper and right. the other two are busy. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a complex issue. Yep. I, I would also add that uh, uh, I think the cultures of these fields are different and I think the expectation in physics is it's a much more cooperative field and mm -hmm. that's what's expected. I think maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the rewards in biomedical research, but one of the problems is uh, you get you don't get rewarded for you know unless you're like the first author or, or or perhaps the last author on a paper, and I think this creates incentives for people uh, to um, uh, to puff up their work sometimes. Yeah, that and, was, yeah, that was my impression too. Is that physics was more of an open sort of environment, um, maybe a little more collaborative, so that either. Uh, each author kind of knows what other authors are, are doing. But. And I would also add that in biology, I think there is still more variability that is, has only begun to be understood. Hmm. You know, there was a time when there were animal behavior and hormone tre uh, treatment experiments that were irreproducible. Hmm. And the community got together to try and figure out what was going on because it was certainly an embarrassment. And they discovered that there were variables that no one had thought about before. The kinds of music that the animal caretaker 
was was playing. Hmm. Uh, how how many animals were in the cage? Was this experiment being done in the early hours of the day or in the evening? And it took a while before the community realized that this could affect physiology in ways that that hadn't been right. ex expected. So we really need also to be aware that science as a general field learns from the failures and that's how science evolves. Mm -hmm. Great, no, that's a great point and we, we'll definitely come back to that. Um, Chris, I did want to come, come back to you just on the question of education um, and I wanted to ask if, if you feel that there's a strong sense of scientific ethics um, in the biosciences and um, do we need additional training especially for younger scientists as they come up in bioethics? So to the, to the first question, is there a sense of ethics in, let's say, biosciences research? You know, I spend most of my time in, in academia in uh, contact with those individuals who work on science projects in, in labs. And I would say that this is a continual challenge for training uh, young scientists about how to be responsible about, uh, responsible about their, their research. In fact, we have courses in many of the big universities called RCR, or Responsible Conduct of Research, and I taught one of those courses for many years at, at Stanford. Um, like anything with teaching, you have to make it relevant. And as science is moving from the kind of the old areas of inquiry into new potentially groundbreaking areas of inquiry that becomes more difficult. So big data is a perfect example. Um, teaching scientists, young scientists, about the ethical ramifications of big data, loss of privacy, mm -hmm. sharing data, mm -hmm. informed consent, all of those sorts of things need to be adjusted in the curriculum so that uh, students find that relevant to not only their own science projects, but for those that are going to become medical doctors, how they conduct clinical research, mm -hmm. or even how they evaluate data when they treat their own patients. So that's the training part of it. Um, the, the kind of the bigger issue, I think, for me, is the culture. So you can train all you want, but if you don't have a culture of doing the right thing, the right thing won't happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So that comes from a number of areas. It comes from the individual labs. It comes from the institutions, kind of the tone from the top, to use an overused phrase. Um, it comes from institutions. It, it can come from journals where these papers are published, professional societies. So I don't think that solutions will all be kind of in the lecture mode. In fact, I can tell you that um, last time I caught a course on, on fraud or integrity in science. I had two students fall asleep in the middle of my lecture. I'm a good lecturer, by the way. <laughs> so the topic doesn't always kind of reach right, right into their heart, and you have to right. kind of make that work. But I, I think the solutions actually have to come from a number of places, right. the educational ones. Right. And to come back to training, um, also not all scientists are trained in the same country. And you know, without pointing out any countries in particular, I, I believe that the training is probably different whether you're looking at, you know, US, Europe, Asia. Um, well, yeah, that's a, that's a kind of a fraught question, I think, because different countries have different norms around this. So mm -hmm. we, we have to be careful about kind of pointing your finger at a country right. and saying, 
you know, they're not up to ethical snuff. However, the focus on um, ethics is different in different jurisdictions. And when you have collaborative projects that reach across countries and across um, investigators, I think that reviewers and those that even um, look at this from an ethical perspective need to understand that researchers are coming with kind of different ideas about what's right and proper for, for research. Well, the incentive structures also do vary a great deal between mm -hmm. countries. I mean, broadly speaking, they are uh, consistent with what we've sort of talked about for decades, which is publish or perish, the idea that mm -hmm. all that really matters is publishing a paper in a high impact factor, a prestigious journal. Uh, and, you know, that's a very competitive process, et cetera. And that's what tenure committees and grant uh, review committees and, and all of that, awards committees, look at. But in different countries, it's different. And sometimes that's a little more muted and sometimes it's a little more indirect. And I would argue that uh, a lot of uh, what we see in the U.S. is it's still very much publish or perish, but it isn't as direct. And if you look at certain <laughs> countries, um, there is actual cash payment for articles, uh, for publishing in peer-reviewed journals. They multiply at times the impact factor. It's about as uh, sort of direct and uh, I think uncomfortable is too, too weak a word. Uh, it, what I sometimes think about it is publish or perish on steroids, right? And this mm -hmm. idea that um, you know exactly uh, that you will get a, you know, a significant cash bonus. I mean, half of your salary for the year sort of thing. So nice. if we think that it's bad in the U.S. and elsewhere where it's a little bit indirect in some places, and, and I'm, I am uh, sort of talking about China in particular, but there are others as well, uh, where it's just, it's even worse than we imagined. And I think in some ways, I'm almost glad that that's there, because it means that we can have a conversation about it and it's just staring us in the face. At the same time, we can't be complacent because it's the same system, it's just dialed up a bit. Yep. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so, um, I wanted to come back to you, Richard, very, very quickly. Um, one of the take-homes for me from your book um, was that many of the issues could be avoided by putting some fairly straightforward checks in place um, for uh, experiments and the way experiments are designed and run. Um, we're going to come back to some of those checks in a minute um, when we talk so about some of the solutions. But I, I'd be interested to hear from you, from those interviewed, is why there were a lack of these checks? Where, where was the resistance? I think a lot of it is just ignorance. People learn from their bosses, and the, the bosses we've already talked about, they're maybe not so well mathematically trained, and, and uh, they come from a different era. Uh, the expectation is that many of the people who are actually doing the experiments, the graduate students and postdocs, are actually there to serve the interests and the, and the, the career of their, of their leaders. So I think this actually sets up a, uh, a tension that, that is not helpful at all. Uh, and I mentioned previously that um, people are not really well trained in methodology. That's something that easily could be, or I, I say easily, I'm not in graduate school, but I mean could reasonably be uh, expanded so that people really understand what methodology is about. And, uh, and spend more time thinking about statistics because uh, a lot of this comes down to really understanding when it's appropriate to use statistics and in, in what case, whether we're talking about p-hacking, uh, mm -hmm. which is sort of, uh, massaging your data often to reach a statistically significant result, which uh, has been greatly uh, perverted, is <laughs> part of the publication process, actually, because you know you can't get it published unless you have a certain p-value in many journals. And that's a very arbitrary standard that has just sort of crept into 
the world of science. Another area that, uh, that I found interesting was called ha uh, harking, which is hypothesizing after the results are known. So you mm -hmm. gather all your data, you say, what's statistically significant? But, but if you do it backwards like that, as opposed to posing a hypothesis and then testing it with statistics, you can easily come up with, with wrong answers. And so some basic just, I mean, those are just a, a flavor of the sorts of things that, uh, that are amiss that, could be, that certainly could be rectified with, with, with just some direct attention. My favorite story about uh, describing harking to the audience, perhaps, uh, it comes from an anecdote in Texas. I think it's called the Texas shooter harking. Yep. So mm -hmm. basically you put your a priori target on the side of the barn, then you take your gun and you shoot at the target, and if you miss the target, you go to the barn and you take the target off the barn and you place it over where your bullet hole is, mm -hmm. and if that's the post hoc sort right. of example, right. nice yeah. way of kind of remembering what mm -hmm. harking is. Right, great, thank you. Um, and Chris, just very briefly, I, I did want to come to you about the case of, of He Jiangqiu. I think he, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, this is obviously at the, the other end of the spectrum, the far end of the spectrum, and I, I think, Ivan, you called it the, the bleeding edge of, of this type of misconduct. Um, can you talk just very briefly about, about what those issues are? You know, what, what did, ethics did he viol violate, and what can we learn from a, a high-visibility case like this? Right, so uh, Heijian Q's um, experiment was all over the news late last year and into this year. He uh, apparently, it looks like it's now confirmed, um, genetically engineered three human embryos and brought these embryos um, uh, to, they became babies, um, using a genome editing, gene editing technology called CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, in terms of kind of the, the ethical violations, this will become, in, in, at uh, my university a case study in how not to do um, science. Um, there are so many I can uh, spend a half an hour going through them, but the main ones were that uh, he conducted these experiments when we don't have all the evidence that this technology is safe. Um, there are a number of technical hurdles that have not been ironed out with CRISPR-Cas9 editing technology. That's the first thing. Second thing is that it's not clear uh, that uh, a proper ethics review was conducted of the experiment before it actually commenced uh, at his institution. Uh, a third major problem is that he enrolled parents in this trial for their embryos, and the informed consent, which is one of the things you do to help patients understand the risk and benefits of the procedure was clearly inadequate. I've read it. Uh, it's a mess. Sure. Um, it's also interesting to someone who kind of looks at these is that this individual engaged a number of American collaborators. So now we've been talking a little bit about how this is a global phenomenon. Um, he also um, apparently undertook what I would call kind of a public relations um, effort in journals where he had a so-called ethics article written by a ghost author that appeared in a mm -hmm. um, kind of a mid-tier uh, CRISPR journal. He did um, podcasts. It wasn't retracted? It was retracted. It was retracted. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. 
Um, he did a number of kind of PR sort of episodes. He was part of a company. There were conflicts of interest in that company. It's now apparent uh, from at least a, a new report I read yesterday that the Chinese government is involved or was involved in his research in some way. So this is a, a mess um, from an ethics point of view. As far as fraud goes, the only thing I can kind of definitively say is I think that the, the, the IRB or the ethics review is, is suspect that those signatures may have been forged. Um, but that's kind of the outline of the, the Chinese case. So if this is an unethical experiment, should it be published? Oh, uh, that's a great question. And if I can just, maybe Barbara and I can talk about this a little bit. Sure. So I wrote a paper uh, in Nature Biotech about a year or two ago, I think, about the first um, embryo experiments done by Chinese researchers where they, where they were um, genetically engineering with CRISPR-Cas9 non-viable embryos. So these are embryos that could not mm -hmm. uh, be implanted. And the argument I made in that paper along with a, a collaborator, um, Aaron Sharma, is that is there an obligation by journals and by society in general to look at these sorts of paper and declare them as frivolous? So this is an, an area that's kind of a gray area in what we're talking about today, but I think mm -hmm. one very important. So at what point do we and reviewers and editors say this sorts of paper really doesn't contribute a lot to the literature? In fact, it's more for splash, mm -hmm. sizzle right. than steak. And should those sorts of papers go on? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Uh, if a paper violates ethical standards, it's commonly uh, accepted ethical standards, you know, where you're getting beyond what maybe one particular country or another, but really violates major standards, then it should not be published. Mm -hmm. So then how do you ever figure out whether what he did was real? Hmm. Uh, certainly scientists have been visiting the lab. He has presented the data. There are other ways of doing that. But to put our, uh, our seal of approval, in a certain mm -hmm. sense, on a paper, that could encourage more misconduct, and well, that's, not, that's not something that we would want to do. It's interesting. So, I mean, some people have suggested he just posted as a preprint. Mm -hmm. and so, it's out there, people can look at it and judge for themselves, but it doesn't have a stamp of approval, quote-unquote, yes. which I always find problematic about peer review, with all due respect, Barbara, but the, <laughs> the sort of imprimatur, at least, right, if not mm -hmm. a stamp of approval. And yet, we've had cases like this in the past, right? So. Um, Marcia Angel, who was editor-in-chief of uh, New England Journal of Medicine for, mm -hmm. I think, a year, uh, mm -hmm. the, her term was um, in the middle of some other interesting things mm -hmm. happening there. Uh, it was about 20 years ago. Uh, New England Journal went ahead and published a paper that Dr. Angel actually said in an editorial accompanying this paper was deeply unethical. And they published it, and I think, and uh, without speaking for her, of course, the editorial is online and so is the paper. Uh, her point was, well, we need to take a look at this. And this was a, a paper that, again, in, in broad strokes, she was questioning whether the ethics were appropriate, uh, to say the least, uh, and it was looking at uh, HIV infection in Uganda. And there were a lot of parallels to the very infamous, appropriately infamous uh, Tuskegee experiment that happened here mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S. And so uh, journals have this really important role to play, and, and mm -hmm. the, it's, a, it's a great question about what they should do with papers that are you know, shown to be or known to be 
uh, unethical, deeply unethical, not sort of around the edges unethical. Uh, we see failure to obtain IRB, you know, mm -hmm. ethical approval as a pretty common reason for attraction. What I'll say, though, is that often that masks the real reason for attraction. It's a bit like getting Al Capone on tax evasion because IRB, really, it's paperwork. Without any disrespect to IRB, it's very important paperwork. But it's easy to see whether someone did it or not. There may be lots of other things happening in the background that, oh, let's just get this out of the literature. Yeah, and I, th I think that's something we should look at. I think that's a really important point, going back to the 2015 papers with human embryos, the non-viable. One was published in a smaller journal called Protein and Cell. Mm -hmm. The other one was Fertility Research. I can't remember exactly. But both those papers apparently went to the main journal, Science and Nature, who rejected them. Mm -hmm. Now. Uh, one of them, I can't remember, I think it's Nature was on record saying they f felt like the paper didn't pass ethical muster. So that is a convenient way of saying perhaps this paper should not be accepted in the journal because not only it doesn't pass ethical muster, it doesn't pass scientific muster too. But unless, and this is a, a personal feeling um, that I have about how journals review on ethical and socially controversial research, unless we have a really good idea of what journals are thinking about when they're doing this and who they're engaging, what sort of mm -hmm. questions they're mm -hmm. asking, we, I think, as a public, can't have a high confidence that this is being done, you know, in a in a highly rigorous way. Mm -hmm. That's great. So I, I think we've we've already kind of segued into looking at some of the solutions, but. I did want to come back to a couple of questions from our audience um, I'm, that I'm going to sort of mash together. Um, one's from a scientist and one's from a high school teacher. The scientist asks, um, how can we distinguish intentional misconduct from accidental misconduct? Um, and the, the high school teacher asks, um, how can we determine what is real and what's fake? You know, looking at it from a broader perspective. So we talked about scientists who use the media in advance of publishing their results to talk about them, talk them up, hype them. Um, where, where, where does the responsibility lie in determining what is real, what's fake? So is it with the public? The, obviously, the publishers have some responsibility. The media, um, Richard, maybe you can talk to that. So I don't know who'd like to, to dive into that one. Well, I'd be interested in Ivan's uh, <laughs> take on the first part, the and first I can take part, the second yeah. part. I was going to say, I, I'll take the easy one, <laughs> which isn't so easy. But um, uh, thank you, Richard. I, I think, you know, it, one of the things, we're, we're always very careful. Uh, so in, in our attraction database, we err on the side of caution of whether or not something is actually misconduct or, or even fraud. And fraud is a particular uh, criminal definition, really. Um, because sometimes we just don't know, often we don't mm -hmm. know, and I do blame the journals a little bit for that, a lot actually for that, because the retraction notices are often opaque. Uh, not so much in science, I have to say, but in many journals, the retraction notices are very difficult to parse. Um, you know, that being said, there isn't often a smoking gun. I mean, mm -hmm. there have been cases, and there are cases every year, where someone had sent an email or confessed to a committee or something like that. Um, there's a famous case in Iowa uh, involving uh, spiked rabbit blood samples that were being used for HIV vaccine uh, experiments where that scientist confessed uh, because, frankly, because he didn't have a lawyer at the time uh, and is now in federal prison for uh, almost right. five years. That's, uh, again, an outlier case. So there isn't this, you know, th people don't wake up and say, I I'm going to commit fraud and let me sort of send this, you know, email 
where I say, by the way, I'm going to make up these results today, and then we know. But if there's a pervasive pattern of behavior, or frankly, uh, what people are starting to think about is, is some of what we're not considering misconduct actually misconduct? Uh, and do we have to look at recklessness, for example, or extreme negligence? You know, this would be the, this would be the difference, for example, between a civil kind of case, if you were thinking of it that way, and a mm -hmm. criminal case. There's mm -hmm. negligence versus a criminal act. So I, I think it's not, it's not always clear, and it, to some extent, I'll, I'll sort of talk out of the other side of my mouth for a second and say, it isn't always the important question either. If the science is wrong, uh, then that's what we need to be thinking about. We need to be sanctioning people so that there's some deterrent and some uh, sort of ability to, to, to prevent this in the future, but I think we need to be worried about when science is wrong. And with that, I'll leave the much more, <laughs> the bigger <laughs> philosophical question to the, the rest of you. The, the, the question about fake science, and I think this is, I actually think, uh, with, with some important exceptions, I think there's not that much fake science that gets reported in the mass media. Mm -hmm. And we have safeguards to, to limit that. One thing we do is we, we prefer to have something peer reviewed. It doesn't mean like it's perfect by any means, but at least it means there have been other careful sets of eyes, other people who've passed judgment on it and say, we think this is, this is the real thing. Uh, we then do our own quick peer review. We will call around when a paper's out and we'll, we'll ask other scientists. And there are mm -hmm. times when a paper is published and, uh, and other scientists are immediately saying, ah, this doesn't seem right. And so we will often do that. Mm -hmm. There was a, a, a notable paper in Science not so long ago about uh, a DNA that was supposedly uh, built around mm -hmm. arsenic instead of phosphorus. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a fab fabulous paper, actually a reasonable, I, I, I know the scientist who did it, mm -hmm. smart guy, thoughtful guy, but he got, got, got fooled by his data, I think. But when, when that paper was published, immediately journalists said, this doesn't seem, you know, journalists called other scientists who said, this doesn't seem real. And so I think that, that, that we, and so we reported that just from the get-go. And then sure, surely when, when the scientists realized that they'd made a mistake with their, with, uh, with their analysis, uh, uh, but then we reported that too, that it's turned out to be false alarm, folks. Uh, mm -hmm. go, yeah, go on with your lives, uh, <laughs> your <laughs> phosphorus-based lives. But, uh, um, but I think the area where this does creep in a little bit is around climate change and issues like that. Mm, I think it's right. covered responsibly in the mass media, and we are careful to talk about what's known and what's not known. But I think a lot of people abuse this as a, you know, they, they gin up something, some uh, uh, scientific uncertainty, they call it, to try to justify their, their preconceptions and their views that are more philosophical than scientific, really, about climate change. And so uh, those, are, those conversations are harder for us to, uh, to adjudicate. I think we do, we do report them, we try to do our best, by and large, to say this is what's known and not known about the science, but, but that, that does creep into the edges of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Laura? I would have a couple of things. In one aspect of fraud, technology has helped, and that is detecting when there is manipulation of gels, of, of, of other kinds of visual data, where it has be, we now routinely, and my, many journals routinely, examine everything to see. Was a gel tinkered with? Was something cut out and pasted? Was, and, and there are more sophisticated ways than cutting mm -hmm. and pasting now, but there are ways to detect that, and that has helped. In climate change, and that is an area where there are very strong passions, one thing that we did was was prohibit use of unpublished data. You know, it's very common, especially in journals that have shorter uh, print formats, to say, all right, this isn't directly related 
but it, it was indirectly related, and we'll just say data not shown, and that's quite all right. We don't allow that because mm -hmm. we want everyone reading the paper to see every bit of data that formed the basis of it. And here, it is the responsibility of the journals, but just as with fake news, it's the responsibility of the public to look skeptically at things and say, okay, is this too good to be true? Do we, is it really believable? Uh, does it seem as if it was done with some kind of controls? You know, there are questions that can be asked that help everyone improve the quality of the science. Mm -hmm. So I think to, to me a lot of this come back, comes back to intent. Mm -hmm. The intent on the part of the scientists, whether they, as, as Ivan, you were saying, no, nobody really gets up and says, I'm going to falsify data, or not many. Um, so I, I, what I have sort of been mulling over is, is the scientific process essentially needs um, these mistakes to happen in order to progress. We're not going to only publish results that are 100% true, right? That's not really possible. Um, so um, there's, we're not, we're not going to get to the point of zero retracted papers, right? I haven't, I, I'm... No, I mean, and then I might have some free time. <laughs> we can't have that. I, I think that we're not going to get to zero. Uh, you know, if you look at scientific fraud, sort of uh, metaphorically or ana analogously, depending, uh, as sort of another human behavior that, you know, like speeding uh, or like any kind of crime, uh, there are ways you can prevent it. There are ways you can offer deterrence. There are ways you can promote good behavior, which is, I think, uh, of what we're talking about with, and Chris is talking about responsible conduct of research and teaching. We're never going to get to zero. Mm -hmm. um, we should maybe aspire to it, uh, but it isn't, as hospitals now say, a sort of never event. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it, it should be a never event, but it, getting there will be almost impossible, I, I think, and I'd, I'd be happy to be proven wrong on that. But I think that um, what we can do is normalize uh, the process of acknowledging error, uh, normalize the process of mm -hmm. uh, acknowledging that not all results are sort of incredible and interesting and, and really surprising. Uh, and that, off, that will take a lot of effort in many areas, including uh, scientific journals who I would argue still need to be, uh, put their money where their mouth is and be more willing to publish results that you know, are, are negative or that are not sort of super exciting. You find those results in some journals, but not in a lot. And then again, you have to take a step back and look at what the incentives are because if the journals that you need to publish in are only interested in publishing exciting, new, amazing results, and you know you need to publish in them to get tenure or to get a grant, you're going to only submit those kinds of papers. And so you have this massive bias in the literature against negative or null results. And I think, you know, that is not fraud. That's not fraud. It's, it's not misconduct. Um, it's not even, it's not false. But it, you know, it skews what we're looking at. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, again, journalists are just as, as guilty, and Richard and I will have to take some blame. We don't write stories about you know, however many planes landed safely at National Airport today, uh, we write a story once every few years, fortunately, about a terrible plane crash. So I, I think, you know, we all have to take some responsibility, but we're never going to get to zero. I would like to jump in and, and say, I think that it is the funding agencies who need to take more responsibility for publishing the negative results. And I agree with you completely. A newspaper doesn't publish all of the times a plane lands safely. A journal, a scientific journal, is not going to publish all of the times people do various 
totally routine experiments. But the funding agencies who are paying for this, they ought to be the repository for the primary repository for negative data. And for people to see, well, what didn't work or what has been done, you know, 300 times, right. that would be the place for it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that as long as we have journals and people competing for the first whatever it is, uh, and people reporting on those firsts, and tenure and promotion, we're going to have investigator zeal. Mm -hmm. And I think that the Chinese case is a good example of that. We can go in the Wayback Machine and visit Wusuk Wang during the cloning scandals of 2005. Investigator zeal, definitely there with fraudulent data. And I mean, even in the 1980s when the first uh, cloned mammals were being attempted, there was controversy around experiments by a German uh, uh, scientist, uh, I think his name was Ilmensi. And the, the thing that kind of gives me hope with this, at least with the first or the last two cases, is that in both cases, with the South Korean fraud and with the, the earlier cloning uh, fraud, postdoctoral fellows and students came out of the woodwork to call the investigator on the, the fraud, or at least started putting evidence in that perhaps the data wasn't right. So I think that it, as much as I say that we need culture on this, I think that there is. Um, now, especially as we have um, greater tools to analyze the data, um, some good news there with people mm -hmm. who are working closely with the data. Yeah, mm -hmm. and in the long run, science is self-correcting, right? It, we would like to have it in the shorter run than in the long run, mm -hmm. but eventually if these fraudulent I, or, or wrong ideas are published and people try to build on them, sometimes there can, there can, it can take a while for people to realize that their publications are built on a false yeah. assumption, mm -hmm. but eventually they, it becomes obvious it's a house of cards and collapses. Mm. So the question is, so in the long run things sort out, but, but, you know, but we, should, we should expect that, that if that house is built on a bad foundation, we want it to fall apart right away so we're not fooled for any length of time and we're not throwing good money after bad. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to come back to something we discussed earlier, Hawking and the, the Texas target sharpshooter. And I, I want to bring in the concept of open science that I know, Richard, you bring up in your book. Um, and that is essentially, instead of just trusting um, that when you see the targets with the bullseye hit, that they actually hit those bullseyes, or whether you require that they sh you, there is somebody observing when they actually do the shooting and whether t the target is moved. Um, so w what about open science? Um, I don't know who'd like to start, Richard, maybe, since you discussed <laughs> it. it. Has this, sure. it's been tried, has this been a success? Can we push it further? Absolutely, I think there's a big movement right now to push it further, and this gets into, uh, I, I think Brian Nosek at the University of Virginia and the Center for Open Science is, is a prime mover behind this, and I think he's doing some wonderful things in this area to try to get people to think differently about that and to make it much more open. It has pitfalls, uh, both practical that scientists find that it takes more time sometimes for them 
uh, to put stuff out, it, they, they feel like it's their intellectual property and if they give it away, they're afraid they're gonna get scooped and I think that's a, a serious concern. But if we taxpayers paid for it, I think at a certain point we have to say, enough is enough. And we've seen this, for example, with the Hubble Space Telescope data. There's a rule that you get, if, if you get time on the Hubble Space Telescope to look at something, you have exclusive access to that data, but for a very specific and limited amount of time. And then once that time has expired, anyone can look at that data. So I think that's, that's a good model to think about. I think pushing back against this, though, is that uh, scientific publishing is a multi-billion dollar industry, and, and it threatens the business model of a, of a large industry. And so, we're, so there's a fair amount of pressure to say, let's not do this, because if everything is published in the, you know, in the open, it diminishes the role for, for science journals. Sure. And I think they're thinking about how to make sure that they still can find a way to move forward and add value. But I think that that's a real pressure in, in this field as well. But I mean, there's, these conversations are happening everywhere about how uh, some institutions are, are thinking, are we going to require this of our, of our grantees and so on. And so, so we are clearly moving in that direction, open, open access publishing and, and open access to, to the underlying data and, and code as well. Mm -hmm. So Chris, this, this has been um, something that has been introduced in the clinical realm and um, in biotechnology. So do you have any thoughts on, has this been successful in, in that area, the clinicaltrials.gov, where um, companies have to post their hypotheses? Well, not just companies, anyone who yeah. is um, interested uh, in having their results published in a journal. Uh, Fifteen journal editors have come together mm -hmm. on a consensus to require that those uh, studies be published in an electronic registry and now I understand results now need to go into that registry. So but often don't by the way. And, right. some, and yeah. often don't, that's true. Um, but that's a good example I think of one of those carrots uh, that really was a good model I mm -hmm. think for getting science more, more open. Mm -hmm. But it comes with a downside too in that you have um, kind of unethical actors or fraudsters putting their so-called uh, trials uh, on the registry that with no intention of ever conducting them or finishing them. So it lends kind of an air of legitimacy to it when, when none exists. On the biotech side, it's, it's interesting. Um, I did a, a, a small study at Stanford on the ethics of biotech entrepreneurs. So how deeply do biotechnology entrepreneurs think about ethical issues when they start their companies. Um, and we found a, a number of really interesting things, but one of them was this pass-down effect. So they didn't quote that great course they got from Christopher Scott at Stanford on research ethics. They said, you know, I just followed the advice of one of my favorite mentors. Mm -hmm. So I think that's instructive for a couple of reasons. You can kind of get bad behavior passed down that way. You can also get good behavior passed down that way. So it's one of the things I think to think about in scientific careers and their trajectories is how they're interacting with people, with mentors, with uh, uh, folks mm -hmm. that they respect a lot and how that can help. Great. So we're almost out of time. We have about 30 seconds, but I did want to give Barbara <laughs> and Ivan the last chance to, to speak. Barbara? I think that there there is an understandable and laudable feeling that the data should be freely available. Uh, and, and that is something that is being aimed at. Many journals are working to help find repositories for different kinds of data. And 
selfishly, this can be to the mm. advantage of journals because what has been happening is the supplemental material has been growing mm. out of all possibility of management. Mm -hmm. And getting that peer-reviewed is difficult. So many societies are helping to link authors to repositories where uh, data can be kept in, uh, and totally open. And the ideal is to have that linked to the peer review system in ways that will make peer review of these large data sets much easier. <laughs> and it's also true, the data is one thing. But what the journals add value for is the analysis of that data and the interpretation of that data. And that's something that can't go easily into a database. And that's where I think the journals will continue to add very important value. Mm -hmm. Ivan, I, I would one. just briefly say that um, I think public scrutiny, and I don't mean just by uh, the public, although that's really important. I think it's sometimes as journalists. Uh, Richard was talking about the fact very briefly that a lot of the data that is actually mandated to appear by law in clinicaltrials.gov and other databases like that has not typically. Well, mm -hmm. after STAT and uh, Charlie Pillar uh, did a big uh, examination of those data, in fact, now a lot of universities and companies are, have incorporated it and they credited uh, STAT and they credited Charlie Pillar's work with actually having that move. And so, and also public scrutiny in terms of other readers and scientists, I think that some journals have realized that sites like pubpeer.com where people can use, can leave comments even anonymously about potential problems are very valuable to them and they've seen that a lot of issues that w apparently were missed by peer reviewers are uh, being found there and I think that that public scrutiny is what has obviously led to a lot of retractions as well but we all need to be open to that and we need to be open to it about our own work as well as journalists but that to me is again not the only uh, solution here but it is an important part of moving forward and maybe cutting down on that Science self-corrects, but in on a sort of you know geological timescale now, <laughs> cutting that down to a, I don't know, whatever the shorter than geological <laughs> timescale is. Okay, fantastic. Well, unfortunately, that is all we have time for right now. So I want to thank today's panelists, uh, Ivan Oransky, Barbara Jasny, Chris Scott, and Richard Harris. Uh, thank you all so much for being with us. Uh, and many thanks to our online viewers for the fantastic questions you submitted. Uh, please look out for more webinars in this series, appearing monthly at webinar.sciencemag.org. And if you'd like to sign up to receive alerts about upcoming events, please go to the link in the Resources tab to the right of your video screen. This particular webinar will be made available to, available to view again as an on-demand presentation within about 48 hours from now. We're interested to know what you thought of today's webinar. Send us an email at webinar at aaas.org. Again, thank you very much to our panel uh, and to Foundation Ibsen for their kind sponsorship of for today's seminar. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.